This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Oh, look at that. Oh, is it a Siamese? No, this is a Burmese. Burmese. This is this oh. is Rickman. Hello, Rickman, Rickman. who <laughs> this is the face he's doing now is I want to run around manically, put me down, put me down, put me down, put me down. <laughs> say hello to say hello to George. Hey Rickman. Hello. Hello, Rickman. Can you get your little... Oh, sweetheart. Hello. No, he's that. like, puts no. me down immediately. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> anyway, what an honour to have you again, George. Great to see you. How are you doing? It's it's, it's lovely to see you, Owen. Thank you. It's, uh, yeah, I'm doing all right. Uh, a bit overworked, but then um, you know all about that. <laughs> well, you've done this fantastic new book. Another masterpiece from George Monbiot. We just expect masterpieces from George. We shouldn't, maybe. Just because the amount of effort and time that has to go in. But it is a masterpiece for Genesis. Feeding the world without devouring the planet. It couldn't be a more important book. Survival of human human existence. Quite important, I'd say. Probably. It's up there. <laughs> is it just to start with? Um, because obviously we live in a in a world of vast chronic inequalities mm. where there are people who would too much to eat and then there are obviously people who are starving people are dying mm. millions of people die every year because they don't have enough food i mean is there just to begin with can we actually support the billions of human beings who exist on a planet with finite resources well yeah i mean this is a really shocking thing that um so since 2015 chronic hunger has been rising again you know it, it was declining from the 1960s until 2014 and then it turned and started rising again and so you think oh there's not enough food but there's loads of food in fact um global food production has been outstripping population all the time since the 1960s there's now more than twice as much calories grown by farmers as human beings need to eat a huge amount of that is wasted largely by putting it through animals instead of through human beings. And animals are very inefficient converters of food into food. Um, you, you get much less out than you put in. Um, and so uh, as, as almost half the world's calories go through animals before they reach human beings, we lose the great majority of those calories by, by doing that. So animal farming greatly threatens human welfare when, when you look at the whole picture. But a lot of it also is going from biofuels. We are literally burning food, which I think is like an extreme form of decadence. It's the sort of thing that the Bullingdon Club would do, but here we are doing it on a global scale, turning huge amounts of food into biodiesel, bioethanol, biogas. It's just incredibly destructive and a really stupid way to um, run the planet. Um, and then there is food waste as well, which is actually much harder to deal with and a smaller component by a long way than the food wasted on being fed to animals. So the food is there for the time being. 
But this super abundant food supply is now severely threatened, um, principally by environmental breakdown, by climate breakdown, by the loss of irrigation water, and by the collapse of the soil from which 99% of our calories come. Let's talk about soil. Soil and soil ecology. So, what it, I mean, explain what it is as an ecosystem, because people obviously, I mean, you know, if people have a garden, they're familiar with yeah. soil, uh, but they don't necessarily think of it as an ecosystem. Mm. Uh, exactly. So, I mean, how much do we even know about, I mean, you'd kind of think we kind of probably know quite a lot about soil by now, but how much do we actually know about soil as an ecosystem? What is it as an ecosystem? Yeah, it, it is amazing, isn't it? We don't even see it as such. We just think, oh, it's just a mass of stuff. Right. But actually, this mass of stuff is, is kind of miraculous. I mean, it's really amazing when you get to grips with what soil is. For, for a start, it's a biological structure. It's been created by the creatures that live in it. Without them, there would be no soil at all. Um, so you've got these bacteria which use the carbon in the soil as cement. They turn it into polymers, into cements, which they use to stick together the little mineral particles. Um, and they make these homes for themselves, these little tiny capsules effectively, which trap oxygen and water and the other stuff they need. And then you've got these micro animals in the soil, which turn the bacterial capsules into bigger living structures, which they use. And then you've got the big animals like um, ants, which on this scale are big animals and earthworms, which turn those into still bigger structures. And it's fractally scaled, which means that at any level of magnification, it's got the same structure. And this makes it the amazing thing that it is, which allows plants to grow and ensures that it stays on the land and doesn't just get washed off by rain or blown away by, by, by the wind, which it would do if it was just the lump and mass that we, we, we tend to see it as. And But when we farm it badly and uh, mistreat it, degrade it, put on too much nitrogen fertilizer, plow it too hard, etc., it can suddenly break down. It can happen very quickly, um, especially when you then get an environmental shock on top of that, uh, like, you know, a major drought, soil erosion rates rise 6,000 fold and you get fertile land just turning to dust bowls. And this is now happening in many parts of the world. We're seeing the loss of soil as one of the great threats to human survival. I mean, it's, it's really massive. Like in, in some parts of the world, 70% of soils are seriously degraded and even in countries like this, where we've got a pretty stable climate, by comparison, we are totally hammering the basis of our subsistence. It's suicidal. Now, fertilizers. Mm. A lot of people think fertilizers, whether you like them or not, I mean, I think generally they have quite a negative association attached to them. Mm. But people kind of think we, we really do not have a choice mm. but to use fertilizers. So mm. is there... An alternative are farmers out there finding ways uh to grow the vegetables we all need to to survive uh without using fertilizers? is that possible yeah so this is yeah a huge and crucial question i'm really glad you asked it so both artificial fertilizers and animal manure actually are extremely harmful some people think that animal manure oh it's organic it's all great it's actually amazingly damaging um, in some respects it's even worse than artificial fertilizer in that it releases even more nitrogen than artificial fertilizer does and nitrogen pollution is what's wiping out our rivers it's contributing massively to climate breakdown there's a whole lot of huge issues with it so you know the the, the holy grail 
would be to be able to maintain high yields with minimal or no fertilizer at all. And that sounds impossible. Most agronomists would say, well, that's ridiculous. Of course, you can't do that. But there is one person who has managed to do it. And he's a farmer called Ian Tolhurst, who grows fruit and vegetables um, in South Oxfordshire. And for 34 years, he's been running these experiments to try to do something which everyone said was impossible and has found a way of doing this. And his yields, I mean, it's quite extraordinary. He's on really rubbish soil. You know, it's basically, it's 40% stone. People would see it as builder's rubble. Most vegetable growers wouldn't even look at it. And he's managed to hit the lower bound of conventional yields on good soil without any fertilizers, any manure, any pesticides, any herbicides, no inputs at all, except a tiny sprinkling of wood chip. And what he's done is he's anticipated through his experiments, the latest findings in soil ecology, which is about the way that bacteria and fungi mediate the relationship between plants and, and, the, and the minerals in the soil. And they release the minerals when the plants need them and lock them up when the plants don't, if you get the soil right. And by just tweaking the ratio between carbon and nitrogen in the soil, he's made this really poor soil into something which supports a great abundance of plant growth. Um, and, and what his work reveals uh, alongside these new findings in soil ecology is that fertility is as much a function of soil biology as it is of soil chemistry. And if you can get the biology right, you can do amazing things with very little. Um, and and that's what this guy, Ian Tolhurst Tolly, has, has been able to demonstrate. Now, ideally, you know, we would roll this out worldwide. We would do similar things, but we need a lot more soil knowledge if we're going to do that. So in terms of the threats that are currently bearing down on food systems, what, you know, how, how well, how serious are those threats for a start? I mean, I think people probably... <laughs> Probably, probably in their interest to know what's the scale and and what what are the kind of things we need to do to deal with these threats. Well, I think the first thing to say is that, is that the food system is innately fragile even before you look at the external pressures bearing on it, and it's become that way for very similar reasons that the financial system became innately fragile in the years leading up to two thousand and eight, which is extreme corporate concentration and synchronization. So. For instance, 90% of the world's grain trade is handled by just four corporations. It's quite amazing. And similar concentration in meat trade, seed trade, chemicals trade, and the rest of it. And that's a very dangerous situation in any system where you've got these huge nodes through which everything goes. That was very similar to what was happening in the financial system. And especially when these nodes are integrated together, when their behavior is synchronized as it is by financial speculation, financial markets and their own activities, you're, you're looking at the development of a potentially very fragile system, which even without any major knock from outside could be tipped over the brink quite easily. But there are major knocks from outside happening. And so climate breakdown, first of all, one more degree of global heating, you're talking about 32% of the world's land surface drying out. Um, you're talking about um, an arc stretching from Portugal to Pakistan being hit by massive simultaneous droughts, taking out a huge section of, 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 of global food production. You're talking about extreme weather events. 
which dry out crops, which drown crops, which flatten crops, which burn crops. Um, we, we have a whole series of these climate issues all bearing upon it. At the same time, water. You know, this is something which we're just not discussing nearly enough. Um, you know, the, the projections say the world's going to need 50% more food by 2050. And all those projections are based on the idea that we'll be using more irrigation water. But there isn't any more irrigation water. It's already maxed out. 70% of all the world's um, extractable water is used for farming. And you, you just can't raise it in, 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 in the way that they say you can. And in fact, you know, um, the glaciers are, 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 are melting, the snowpack is melting, um, those sources of water are disappearing, the underground aquifers are being depleted. And you know, a huge part of the world's food cannot be produced without that water. Then you've got the soil as well. And and you put all those things together and you say, we literally cannot cannot carry on like this. If If we carry on on this trajectory, we are going to starve. In terms of livestock, and I mean, the climate emergency is something everyone associates your very, very extensive body of work, obviously, in terms of highlighting the climate emergency and the existential threat it poses to human civilization. And lots of people, obviously, are very familiar with emissions from industry, from transport. But of course, livestock produce huge amounts of emissions of methane, which is particularly grim when it comes to trapping in i suppose uh heat um now in terms of vegan i mean tell us firstly about the scale of of what that means for the climate mm. emergency not least i suppose because in india and china more people eat, are eating meat so mm. more and more yeah. um there are more meat eaters but then you know vegan it's, it's true if we look at kind of vegan plant-based diets in the uk got the figures here in theory great I would say there's a hypocrite. I'm not a vegan. Between 2014 and 2019, the number of vegans quadrupled in Britain, mm. but it's still a very low figure. 600,000 yeah. or about 1.2% of the population. Don't know if the pandemic's had any impact on that. Um, yeah. So just tell me to kind of the, Im the impact on the climate, on the climate emergency of livestock. Mm. And, you know, is there any hope in investing in vegan based mm. in veganism? Because it's still, mm. it's quite a niche yeah, in, yeah. In many no. Well, this is another excellent question. And so livestock produce um, more more global heating, um, more, more greenhouse gas emissions than global transport does. It's a huge cause of climate breakdown. And it's principally the methane and the nitrous oxide also uh, that livestock produce. Nitrous oxide comes from their dung. Um, but that even that doesn't capture um, what what um, what the total um, um, effect of livestock is, because the biggest um, thing they do is create this massive carbon opportunity cost, because livestock require a huge amount of land to produce not very much food, especially grazing livestock. So 12% um, uh, uh, of the world's land surface is used for growing crops. Grazing livestock occupy 28% of the world's land surface, and yet um, the, the, the food produced from um from grazing alone supplies just one percent of our protein it's a tremendously profligate land use now that land is land which is not being used 
for rainforests and, and woodlands and savannas and wetlands, all of which have an enormous capacity for sucking up carbon. So massive as the sort of current account production of greenhouse gases from um, livestock farming is, the capital account is even bigger because you, know, you have to take into account the carbon opportunity cost, which is massive. You know, if we stop livestock farming, we could draw down a huge amount of the carbon dioxide which we've already released into the atmosphere. In fact, it's, it's very hard now to see how we can stop climate breakdown without doing that, as well as decarbonizing our economies. So, you know, are we all going to go vegan? Well, no. Um, it's it's. I mean, much as I would love us to, um, and and it makes a massive impact to to your environmental footprint to go vegan. Um, it's just not going to happen through that sort of very slow drift of people's dietary preferences, not least because um, while some of us in some countries are going vegan, other people in other countries are now eating a lot more meat. And um, the number of um, uh, the weight of animals on Earth is expected to increase um, 2.4 percent a year. You know, this is more than twice the rate of the human of human population growth. You know, the population crisis is is a livestock population. That's the one we should be focusing on. So, what do we do? And and my feeling is, you know, we need um, uh, to produce stuff which is almost identical to meat and milk, but is not meat and milk, so that people don't need to say, oh, I've gone vegan, you know, they're still eating what is, to all intents and purposes, meat and milk, but doesn't come from animals. And as luck would have it, would have it in the very nick of time, the necessary technology has come along in the form of precision fermentation, where you can make fat and protein unlimited quantities with a tiny, tiny land footprint, carbon footprint, everything else footprint materials footprint so much smaller than the the footprint um, of any form of agricultural protein or fat production whether it's livestock soya palm oil uh, whatever it is by producing by basically brewing microbes in a factory um, you can produce your pro protein and fat with a really minimal impact by comparison to the way we do it today and i think that's the way it needs to go we need to take those elements out of farming and into the factory. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Protein substitutes. I find this quite interesting because sometimes... Um 
I do this uh, the Jamie Vine show, and they they did a they did a segment on protein substitutes and whether people would eat protein substitutes, and the calls were feisty, I would say. <laughs> so I'm just interested in in protein substitutes in terms of these you know the new technologies uh, that have been developed. Are they tasty? Are people going to buy into them? Or are they going to go? What my meat? Um, yeah, I mean, what what you know? How, what are the technologies? How good yeah, have they got? Sure. And you know, because I'm protein I, i'm always looking for sources of protein as a yeah, vein yeah. man <laughs> uh protein is very good for you it's for for building muscle and all and 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 for lots of other things so t- tell me about that sure so um i i have the the unusual distinction of being the first person on earth outside the laboratory to eat a pancake made of microbial protein mm. um uh, it came from the um, um flour being produced um by a company called Solar Foods in Helsinki in, in Finland. Um, and this flower is just the dried bodies of the bacteria that they're replicating in, in their vats. And you say, oh my God, Frankenstein food. But you know what? It tasted exactly like a pancake. Wow. That's a weird thing. That's just a really spooky thing. You could not tell the difference. Uh, we had to dilute it with wheat flour to make the pancake. Otherwise, we would have made an omelette because it's like 60% protein. But um, you know, when we'd done that, it was like, oh my God, I can't believe there's not eggs and milk in this. It was just so bizarre. But this this protein and fat, um, you know, you can turn it into anything. You know, it, it's it's you can create all these structures. Um, there's so many technologies, 3D printing, protein construction, and the rest of it to basically substitute the stuff we're eating today, but also to develop whole new cuisines we haven't even thought of. Just like the first people to domesticate a wild cow never thought about camembert. You know, we've got just like a whole enormous, unimaginable range of potential foods which we could start to develop from these new technologies. Now, of course, people say, oh, I don't want to eat bacteria. That's disgusting. Well, first of all, bad news. You eat bacteria with every meal. It's Mm. absolutely your food is full of them. In fact, some of the things we eat today are deliberately contaminated with live bacteria to give them their quality, like, for instance, yogurt or this um, stinky yellow stuff we make from milk called cheese, which is entirely dependent on bacteria mm. to become cheese. And it's full of live bacteria. I'm talking about dead ones. So you should mm. be less, less horrified by that than by eating cheese. But also imagine it was, it was the other way around. Imagine we were currently getting our protein and fat and all the vast panoply of products made from them from um, growing microbes in factories, in vats, standard brewing practice, basically. Um, And someone came along and said, look, let's do away with all that. I'll tell you what, let's use animals instead, right? We'll domesticate this wild cow thing and this wild boar and the jungle fowl and this mess, uh, this woolly creature from Mesopotamia. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll breed them, domesticate them and then pack them into factories. We'll separate the young animals from, from their mothers. Um, you know, because they're all packed in, obviously we had to cut the beaks off the jungle fowl and the bulls off the, off the mammals. And we have to, um, and cut the tusks off and the, and, and the horns off and the rest of it. Anesthetic. Now, of course you can't afford that. Don't be silly. And we'll, we'll, we'll pack them all in. Um, and, um, and we'll subject them to short and stressful lives but then you know we we can stun them and cut their throats and skin them and chop up their flesh and we could eat that yeah yeah we could we'd only need to kill 75 billion 
a year that's all yeah and okay you know we'd trash the rivers we'd trash the soil we'd use up a huge amount of planetary space we would um trash the climate we'd probably threaten our future existence but you know the taste imagine the taste is going to be fantastic and yeah well yeah okay the animals you know their lives aren't going to be perfect but you know they're serving this higher end which they're going to give us like like meat and and milk and stuff mm. don't you want that i mean you know if i came forward with that proposal turning it the other way around people would think i was mad okay mm. people already think i'm mad but people would be absolutely outraged and disgusted by that idea and you're telling me that microbial protein grown in a sterile factory environment is disgusting come on mm. fact, i mean it does remind me of uh of star trek where they'd um i was a Obviously, a complete loser. Uh, no, that's not come on. Uh, trekkies, nothing wrong with trekkies. But I watched. But they had these machines that created food out of out of nothing, um, because obviously they were traveling around space. They didn't necessarily have food sources. But I just wonder in the future you could just literally, you know, find ways of just creating. I mean, almost out of thin, not out of thin air, but you can. Mm. But, but that's what we're talking about. This is literally what we're talking about. So, so this this pancake I had I had in Helsinki. Um, it was developed by NASA. The, the, wow. the technology of, of uh, in the 1960s, you know, uh -huh. and this is very well established technology. Yeah, developed for exactly that purpose. Exactly so if we went to, for example, Mars. So for example, if there was a mission to Mars, it's quite hard to. I mean, I've seen. I can't. Is the film called Mars? I can't remember. Whether well, there's a film with Matt Damon in it where it all goes horribly wrong and he has to find ways of growing food, otherwise he's going to die. So yeah, I mean, I suppose for space travel, I'm going a bit I mean, off. Yeah. No, 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 no. But but this is this is the exact thing. So, you, you know, you, you, it was originally developed for that purpose. But there's, you know, there's no reason why this shouldn't be developed for planet Earth. And and you know, so much of our imagination of what we could do on other planets. Saying, hang on, what about this yeah. one? Yeah, what about making conditions survivable on this planet? I mean, a lot. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of actually things developed by NASA and by space for space purposes have actually been applied hmm. uh, to human to human existence on Earth. Perennial gains. Tell me about this. What are what are we talking about here? Perennial gains. Uh, grains. Perennial grains. Yeah. Um, perennial gains are also. Oh, know, yeah, yeah. We grains, like those two. Gains. We like those perennial two. Gains. Perennial gains. Yeah. No. No. We, we, I mean, perennial grains give you perennial gains. So yeah, let's let's go for it. So, so the great majority of the food we, the staple crops we, is is comes from annual plants, and annual plants are plants which grow and die in the course of one year, um, and large areas covered by annual plants are rare in nature you know it's, it's it's what happens when you've had a volcanic eruption or a major fire or a flood or something some other disaster which has killed off um all the plants which already exist you'll get these 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 very quick growing quick reproducing plants which will move into that space grow rapidly um and then quickly get overtaken by the perennial plants, which are the ones which survive from one year to the next, which then tend to dominate ecosystems. So in order to grow our crops like, you know, wheat and oats and barley and potatoes and all the other things that we, all our other staple food, um, maize and soya and all, all the things that we depend on, we have to create an ecological disaster. We have to clear the land. Uh, spray it or plow it, kill off everything that was living there before, create a sort of tabula rasa, and then and then we plant those crops and we give them loads of fertilizer and loads of help to grow because you know they they're pretty fragile as they start off. 
and then we have to primp them and pet them and prevent the perennials from coming in. So we had to use loads of herbicide to keep keep the competition away. What if we could produce those same grains or similar ones from perennial plants? Well, you'd massively reduce the amount of plowing and spraying and, and fertilizing that you have to do in order to produce those crops. Um, you could um, uh, um, have all sorts of possibilities then of of going towards that sort of minimal fertilizer model that that we're talking about um, at the beginning of, of of this show, and and there's a group in in Salina, Kansas called the Land Institute, which is developing exactly this, and they um, um, they've already uh, with the help of um, a uh, uh, Yunnan University in China have produced a perennial rice which has the same yields as annual rice. Um, and they've had six harvests in a row, all of which have produced those same high yields. And the amazing thing about it is, uh, well, farmers are queuing up for, for this seed. They're desperate to get hold of it because uh, above all, uh, all else, it, it, is, it causes massively less soil erosion than the annual rice does. Because with annual rice, when you're constantly breaking the soil, um, you're exposing that soil to, to collapse. And we see sort of terraces paddy terraces just falling off the hillsides every so often because of the massive load put on the soil by that constant breaking and plowing and planting and harvesting and the rest of it that that you need with annual rice um, it also requires a lot more labor so if you can stick your seed in the ground one year and keep harvesting it year after year um, for i mean not forever but for quite a few years to come you greatly reduce those impacts and you also greatly reduce your demand for labor so farmers are desperate for it i've eaten some of that rice it's exactly the same as the short grain rice that i buy down the road um, they're also developing a whole load of other grain crops um, there's one called intermediate wheatgrass or kernza um, and i've uh, they sent me several packets of this flour it's delicious. It's really, it's got this lovely nutty um, flavor and, and a really nice texture. I made bread with it, biscuits with it, wraps with it, um, um, crackers with it, and they all came out really nicely. Um, it's looking at um, uh, forms of perennial wheat. Um, there's sunflowers. The, the other thing about this is that these perennial plants are much more resistant to climatic shocks than the annual plants are because they put down much deeper and thicker roots and they've got much stronger structures. So for instance, the Land Institute um, is growing these perennial sunflowers, which you produce sunflower oil from, um, beside annual sunflowers. And they had two major droughts while they were growing through them, uh, while they were growing them. And one of them almost wiped out the annual sunflowers, the other completely wiped out the annual sunflowers. The perennials just sailed straight through them, no problem at all. So I think this is a big part of the future. Finally, we're in the midst at the moment of a cost of living crisis. And even before the current crisis, the, in Britain, being the longest squeeze in workers' living standards since the Napoleonic War at the beginning of the 19th century. You know, I remember after the crash, people spoke about the potential for a lost decade of, of growth, income growth, but we're looking at two decades now. It's astonishing. Yeah. By, by, by just yeah. in terms of historic records, it's absolutely just amazing. Just amazing. Astonishing. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's it, I mean, it's topical for lots of reasons at the moment, but there's uh, um, this week a Tory MP, used to be a Labour councillor, 
um, <laughs> called Ian, uh, called Lee Anderson, suggested there's not this massive yeast and food banks in this country. We've got generation after generation who cannot cook properly. They cannot budget. Classic Thatcherite idea of yeah, yeah. social problems are actually individual failings, which obviously yeah. justifies Thatcherite economics. Um, yeah, I'm just interested though, in terms of, because obviously at the moment you do have, you've got parents skipping hot meals to make sure their kids um, mm. are fed. Um, we've got, you know, malnutrition in this country. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's not because people obviously don't know how to, to cook um, and or, or get cheap food. It's because they've been driven into poverty. So just tell me in terms of sustainable, you know, making sustainable foods affordable. And that's Rickman, my cat trying to buy me. <laughs> sustainable foods, how to make them affordable and how that can help with the cost of food. Because obviously I'm interested or we're all interested in, and your book is very interested in a sustainable food system that can also help deal with the absolute scourge yeah. of food poverty. Absolutely. And this is a, 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 to a critical part of the whole picture. Um, so at the moment, you know, as, as you so rightly say, you know, we've got this massive crisis of food security in one of the richest nations on earth. It's a scandal. And clearly, you know, its root is in inequality and austerity and the other um, outrageous impositions on the poor of this country. Um, this whole um, Lee Anderson thing that, oh, people don't know how to cook. I mean, I, I spent quite a bit of time when researching this book, interviewing people at my local food bank, and they're just desperate for fresh food that they can cook with and and you know and 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 I, and I asked them specifically about this and and some people said well I'm not much of a cook but you know you can always look up a recipe on google it's not difficult and make something with whatever you get here and and one one woman said well it's like ready steady cook isn't it you just get this sort of slightly random um, group of ingredients from from the food bank and then you have to devise something from it and and I enjoy the challenge and everyone literally everyone i spoke to wanted to cook and had and knew how to cook also you know they were doing they were using every single thing they got from the food bank and to do that because most of it is fresh you have to be able to cook and this sort of whole patronizing idea that you know sort of me as a tory mp i can instruct you how to live on nothing a day um you know from from my castle it's just like Oh, anyway, anyway, um, um, put, trying to put aside the anger um, for, for a moment. It's it's like, yeah, as well as a far more distributive economy, obviously, you know, we still need healthy food that is going to be affordable to everyone. And, and at the moment, according to the UNFAO figures, it costs five times as much to eat a healthy diet as one that's merely adequate in terms of calories. And there's something just fundamentally cropped about the global food economy. You know, we're spending um, $600 billion a year on farm subsidies worldwide, and they're not delivering healthy food, affordable food, um, they're just, uh, and, uh, or, or for that matter, environmental protection. On, on the contrary, they're driving us towards environmental disaster. So one of the things which um, the, uh, the local organiser of, of, of the food bank have been working with has been, um, says, and I think she's absolutely right, is you know, we need to subsidise healthy food at the point of sale. Fruit and vegetables should be subsidised at the point of sale. Um, so that we sort of tip the balance between the price of unhealthy food and the price of healthy food, not by making unhealthy food more expensive, but healthy food less expensive. And, um, and, 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 and you know, that would be a so much better use of that huge amount of public money 
that's spent on farm subsidies, most of which goes to some of the richest people on earth just because they own land, it'd be so much better to spend that on making healthy food affordable. Now, some of the technologies and approaches I'm talking about, you know, because they're so productive with so few inputs, can also be very cheap. But, you know, delivering fruit and vegetables cheaply, that's much harder. And that's where the subsidies should be. Just finally, what do you think about, and says because, you know, there's so much huge ambition in this book about obviously meeting the scale of this crisis. How much are you confident about the kind of leading politicians of the day supporting and promoting, investing the approaches that we so desperately need at the moment? Yeah, I mean, this is a problem right across the board, isn't it? You know, with every major environmental, social, economic issue that we look at, it's just like you wouldn't want that lot in charge. And that's regardless of which country you're in, you know, just about, you know, there are very few countries where you think, oh, yeah, that's a government that gets it. That's a government which actually wants better outcomes for the majority of its people rather than for the oil companies and the other political donors and the ultra wealthy and privileged people. So, yeah, it, it is really tough. And this is why we need mass protest and mobilisation. And this is why governments like the UK are shutting down protests, are making it illegal, because that is how politics changes. They know that they're deeply threatened by it. And we should take a leaf out of that and say, okay, if they're deeply threatened by it, we know it works. Mm -hmm. If they're trying to ban it, we know it works. They wouldn't mm -hmm. be trying to ban it if it didn't work. So we've just got to get the numbers up, the numbers of people who are prepared to stand up. Yeah, put their liberty at risk in some cases, definitely because of the, the extreme oppression now being visited upon us. But otherwise, we're screwed. I mean, we are really, really screwed. If we allow this lot to carry on with business as usual, there's no way we're getting through this century. You know, the crucial Earth systems are going to tip because that's what happens. You know, they pass tipping points. They cross these critical thresholds and they collapse into a completely different state, which will be uninhabitable mm -hmm. for most human beings and most vertebrate life forms. So we cannot sort of put our faith in government and believe that they're just going to deliver the right outcomes. They won't. They're going to do what the corporate lobbyists tell them to do. Brilliant stuff, George, as ever. Honestly, mm -hmm. it's such a, such a vital book. Everything... George writes is 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 so crucial and obviously often much of your work relates to the future existence of human <laughs> civilization and humanity as a species so you could not not really more pressing than that I would say <laughs> Regenesis feeding the world without uh devouring the planet is a brilliant another brilliant book uh by George all his writing obviously is is very beautiful accessible but also makes very complicated bits of science very accessible to lay people like myself, uh, which is which is obviously key when we're talking about issues relating to the future existence of human civilization, because the problem often is people find it so difficult to process, often very complex information, but you do it so wonderfully and beautifully. Um, so everyone make sure, whether you're watching or listening to this, make sure you go now and order a copy and tell everyone you know to do the same. It's a brilliant book as ever. And it's a great honour to have had you again, George. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And real pleasure. All the right questions. And um, just great to talk to you. Thank you. You as ever. Take care, George. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting. And I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road. Uh, forward slash Owen Jones 84. Leave us some stars. That'd be nice. Spread the word. And... 
I look forward to speaking to you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.